Welcome to the Geoeconomics Podcast. I'm your host, Alexa Pomazovic, and today I'm speaking with Ekaterina Evdokimova. Ekaterina is the co-founder and the managing partner at Stupino Quadrat, which is uh, Russia's first private special economic zone. Uh, she's also a lawyer in several jurisdictions and uh, actually works with, uh, with FOMOSA, the International Free Zones and Special Economic Zones Organization. Uh, the discussion we have today is going to be focused on how Russia leveraged its legacy of science and industry uh, in the SEZ space. Uh, we sort of talk about the Russian SEZ space and the business environment and what makes it special and unique. Um, so anybody interested in Russia and the ex-Soviet space, because a lot of this stuff carries over, uh, this might be the discussion for you. So without further ado, here's Yekaterina. And here I am with Yekaterina. Yekaterina, how are you doing today? Hello, Alexa. I'm fine. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing excellent. Thanks for coming on to the podcast. Uh, Ekaterina, if I'm not mistaken, Stupino Quadrat, your uh, zone has just recently, I think a couple of, uh, maybe a week ago, has uh, turned six years old. That's right. That's right. And it is the first private special economic zone in Russia. So it's uh, it's six years since the first private special economic zone in Russia uh, has been around. But how long have SEZs been in Russia, you know, from the public sector, so to speak? Um, since 2005, uh, there is a law on special economic zones. And the first tries, they started at the end of the uh, 20th century with uh, special economic zones in Kaliningrad, uh, in uh, Murmansk, and in Magadan. And were these zones during the Soviet times or was this in the 90s? No, no, it was all on the uh, end of 90s. So uh, the special economic zones as, uh, as an institution uh, is a creation of the 21st century for Russia. Oh, it's definitely so. Um, I'm thinking about the 20th century uh, in uh, in the Soviet Union, sort of, there were, uh, you know, um, on one end, we have China that experimented with uh, with special economic zones in the 1980s during their own uh, during their own uh, communist period. And um, in Russia, the transition sort of happened uh, during the uh, during the 90s. So when looking at the Soviet Union, you know, up to uh, up to the 90s, uh, I'm sure that there was significant levels of, you know, academic and uh, and scientific innovation that was going on and this uh, this is stuff that happened in like concentrated development centers throughout the country so i was wondering if you could tell us more about that and maybe what the legacy is of these centers and how they influence modern SEZs throughout russia in my view it is a problem of um, separation in the population into academics and non-academic and uh, if such people meet together uh, they don't have uh, common ground to speak about. So uh, in Russia, uh, the way of educating people, and it is uh, it is continued up to now, educating people um, on the self, self, uh, same level until uh, they are 15 years old, which means mathematics, uh, foreign languages, um, literature, history, uh, on the uh, of the same base is very important. And also the school program uh, was um, a matter of the uh, federal regulation. And in, in Germany, for example, it's a matter of uh, federal state regulation. So different federal states mm-hmm. have different um, academic standards. Uh, I, I, you, you want me to be more precise. Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 will, I will try to do so. Uh, just to explain the uh, the general uh, academical educational system in Russia. And then after the eighth grade, people have to decide whether they go to the university or whether they stay in a profession. And um, 80 to 90 percent of people stayed for, um, for another two years at school in order to be able to go to the university. 
this uh, percentage is quite different in the United States and in Germany from, from uh, those countries which I know from my own experience. So uh, this means that the academical tradition is uh, quite different in the perception of the huge mass of the population. Then uh, universities. Uh, there was there were several universities in several um, federal states of the Russian Federation with a very good tradition. And there were 14 uh, scientific centers, also federal scientific centers, which is uh, not an educational institution, but an institution for research and development. Mm-hmm. In the um, um, traditionally strong areas of the Russian competence, physics, material science, um, chemistry, biology, medical science, different sources of energy, uh, including uh, atomic energy. And those 14 uh, scientific centers, they are developing uh, further. In uh, Novosibirsk, which is uh, uh, one of the Greenfield University built up in the 60s of the last century, uh, there is a very strong and um, very uh, productive academic uh, city. It's the name academic city. And it, it has become a, a techno park right now. So what they are doing, uh, they are uh, welcoming all the startups um, uh, through uh, sharing uh, uh, facilities for prototypes, 3D printers, all that stuff which you need in order to make a prototype. And which is more important with the very strong um, mentoring network. So Novosibirsk is really advanced. Then we have eight of uh, these 14 uh, scientific centers located in Moscow and Moscow region, um, in the big Moscow area. And there are also um, success stories about how these uh, scientific centers converts into uh, cereal production. Uh, Dubna, for example, uh, a special economic zone, is located in this in one of these uh, uh, scientific centers. Um, I guess what or, or what is uh, lacking in Russia right now, and I see a huge opportunity for the foreign uh, investors, for the foreign angels, is um, a private venture capitalists, private venture, uh, private venture capital uh, culture. Uh, so, um, from my experience, what I see in the Silicon Valley, or also in Hong Kong, uh, there are worlds between uh, what Russian startups do have to their disposal and what is uh, just normal style of life in, uh, uh, in, in China or in the USA. Also in Germany, uh, they start a very good uh, startup support program. Um, Russia supports at the moment um, very, very generous the industry. So uh, the measures of state support are unprecedentable uh, right now in Russia. Uh, uh, we get up to 30% uh, reimbursement of the capex in certain industries. There are uh, very uh, low-cost loans uh, for uh, different kinds of industries. Uh, there is subvention for uh, infrastructure and renovation of the um, producing facilities. So um, compared with what I know in, uh, in the Western world, 
So what types of industries usually get supported? Is it stuff like uh, is it stuff like software or is it uh, material science and propulsion? You mentioned there being a tradition of hard science like biochemistry and physics and all of that stuff um, in Russia. I was wondering, uh, are these industries getting promoted uh, as you know hard industries or are they uh, searching to diversify with stuff like software and with uh, advanced uh, advanced technologies a bit more in the software space? So um, there are four types of special economic zones in Russia, um, industrial zones uh, for producing industry for cereal production, high-tech zones. This is uh, more what you're speaking about, uh, promotion of innovations, uh, then uh, port zones and tourist, uh, tourism zones. But uh, uh, the industrial production is being uh, promoted by different means of um, federal support uh, and by different institutions on the federal level and also on the regional level. So for the industrial production, there are um, special economic zones of the industrial type. There are uh, industrial parks. There are territories of uh, um, accelerated uh, development. There are monocities where uh, uh, only one plant is granting jobs for all the population of the city. And they make 6% of the Russian uh, GDP. Okay, so uh, these are examples of the uh, industrial measures of support and uh, institutes promoting industry. For the scientific and innovative development, there are special economic zones uh, of the high-tech type and there are a tradition of these scientific cities, which were um, at the Soviet time financed by, by the state. And um, it was a collection of beautiful mines. Uh, there were 14 of them. And this tradition is um, continuing to be so. But um, the problem is that these scientists uh, they are not entrepreneurs in the majority of cases. And to bring um, innovation on scale, you need to have entrepreneurial mind. And this bridge between the science and uh, entrepreneurship, uh, this is what we still have to, uh, to work on. Different institutions like uh, Akadem City in Novosibirsk or uh, Skolkovo in Moscow, uh, they uh, are making their uh, full effort and they, are, they succeed. But uh, there is much more innovation or much more um, scientific work and uh, scientific achievements which could be commercialized and are still uh, underestimated. And this is why uh, I was speaking about uh, need for uh, venture capitalists with their um, scaled experiences. Uh, we need, uh, uh, we lack of serial entrepreneurs. We lack of mentoring tradition on scale. Like, you know, in the uh, Silicon Valley, you have uh, Peter Diamandis, who is educating uh, all the uh, startups with his uh, three or five different educational uh, uh, programs, uh, starting with uh, uh, Singularity University and uh, up to his uh, different mentoring programs, where he uh, 
gathers the best uh, 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 the best uh, teachers and the best trainers and the best coaches and also um, the angel investors. With the different types of zones taking place in uh, in Russia, uh, Stupino Quadrat is uh, which type of zone? Stupino Quadrat is uh, originally uh, as uh, industrial uh, zone. So it was founded as an industrial zone. The speciality is that Stupino Quadrat is a completely privately owned land. And as a private investor, we applied to the government to uh, grant uh, benefits in taxes and customs to our residents. Mm-hmm. And then the uh, government agreed for this experiment. And within six six years, we attracted 30 investors, 17 plants are already operating. Um, We created uh, 2.5 thousand direct uh, working, uh, direct jobs. And uh, with the coefficient for uh, indirect jobs, you know that it is three to 15, depending on the country, we have uh, about seven coefficient of seven for indirect jobs. So we are uh, by uh, more than 15,000 jobs right now, uh, indirect jobs. It's interesting that the first private zone in Russia was industrial as opposed to high tech, because uh, with high tech, there's a bit lower, uh, a bit lower startup costs. You can have, uh, you know, you can have sort of experimental laboratories that uh, that don't necessarily uh, cost that much. Whereas the installation of industrial facilities is something that would uh, that would presumably take a lot more, uh, a lot more capital. Something that's associated with uh, government-supported zones as opposed to uh, to private. So, are there plans? For uh, for other private zones in Russia, particularly in the uh, in the high tech space, or uh, what's the uh, what's the route that you see the Russian zone space taking? It is a political moment we're speaking about now. You can imagine that since 2014, we have two problems. The first one is we are isolated uh, because of the sanctions, and the other one is the volatility of the ruble. So the imports and Russia lived for for the consumer market, but not only for the for the consumer market. Uh, I, I don't want to be that political, so I will speak about consumer market. Uh, lived from import, everything for day to day life we imported from abroad, and now the market is empty. So we need everything. We need food. We need uh, cosmetics. Uh, we need construction materials and so on. Uh, so Russia started and, uh, and the private entrepreneurs started to build up production facilities. The demand is huge for that. I can tell you, well, uh, my special economic zone um, is more international because uh, we have an international managing uh, team and we, uh, we were from the very beginning oriented to attract foreign investors since since I'm a German uh, lawyer and a Russian lawyer and American uh, uh, LLM. Uh, so I operated in different jurisdictions and uh, I live in Germany or I've been living in Germany since 1997. So what type of uh, what type of challenges do you usually uh, see faced by the foreign investors into Russia? I'm sure it's an unusual uh, market for them. Uh, what is it that Supino Quadrat usually helps out with? What seem to be the most common challenges that they run into? The concept uh, uh, of, of Stupino Quadrat is uh, holistic industrial approach, as I called it, making investments happen by making investors happy. So what we do, do we give the investor an opportunity to concentrate on his uh, key competition, production and sales. The rest we can take 
over for him if he wants. If not, then he's doing it itself. We save the, the effort of the management uh, of the foreign investors that we can help and assist in any day-to-day difficulties, starting with getting work permission or English-speaking driver or find a school for a child, an international school, or a residence uh, for, for the general manager who is uh, very often um, a foreign citizen, up to uh, constructing the whole plant completely uh, uh, and uh, give a turnkey solution. So uh, uh, depending on uh, what uh, demand they have, we can assist in everything. And this was the uh, main mission of Stupino Quadrats, uh, which was also translated uh, to, uh, to, to the world with uh, our different representative offices in the world and also uh, through the communication on uh, conferences such as BNU, for example, now. Um, why it was not a, um, a high-tech zone, uh, not a scientific innovation zone. Well, um, uh, the innovation uh, activities are allowed and also appreciated in our industrial zone. We can uh, uh, host the innovations and we are working with different institutions on it. There is a concept uh, created by Mr. Agan Began, uh, who is uh, one of the oldest members of the Russian Academy of Science, um, to create a, a net university in Stupino Quadrat, uh, making a network of the eight uh, scientific centers in the uh, big Moscow area, uh, creating a campus for uh, bachelors for the first two bachelor years in Stupino Quadrat and giving lectures uh, by the well-known and world-famous professors from these eight uh, uh, scientific centers. And then uh, to uh, make campuses by the scientific centers for the students uh, chosen by those professors for the further education, for their uh, masters, uh, for their PhDs, and also a business school, a medical school, and uh, a language school um, within Stupino Quadrat. This would enable on the one hand side uh, the um, close connection of the industry and uh, entrepreneurship with the um, scientific leaders, uh, this is what I spoke about, the gap, the um, lacking of commercial set of mind by the most of scientists on the one hand side. On the other hand side, this would give this university uh, their reputation uh, established uh, since the Soviet time for many decades uh, because uh, teachers in this university would be uh, the uh, professors and uh, members of the Academy of Science uh, from eight uh, scientific centers. And with these scientific centers being one of the uh, one of the research and development pillars of uh, of Russia today, uh, what are sort of the largest? Well, except for uh, Novosibirsk, which you uh, which you mentioned, what are the biggest uh, legacy? legacy centers of this type in Russia? And what are some interesting developments that have been coming out of these places? Because one of the stories that I remember was that uh, that Yandex, the uh, the 
sort of technology company was experimenting with self-driving cars in one of the uh, in one of the uh, modern uh, high-tech zones in uh, in Russia. So I was just wondering which the biggest zones are as far as technological innovation goes, and what are some of the more uh, interesting innovations uh, that we may see coming from these places. Well, there is a, a huge innovation center in Moscow, uh, Technopolis, Moscow. Uh, which is located also in uh, um, very close to one of the former Soviet scientific centers, Zelenograd, uh, and uh, um, they were they were leaders in uh, microelectronics, but they are still developing uh, electronics and uh, exporting it uh, outside of the country. Uh, they have uh, a strong biotech. Um, expertise right now and several uh, high-tech bio, uh, biotech enterprises are uh, operating there. And they have a um, good uh, means of support for startups uh, because they build up sharing production facilities for uh, uh, both for prototype and also for the uh, serial production. A very service-oriented. Technopolis is uh, uh, Good in well, uh, a new uh, management uh, team arrived a year and a half ago. And now the leader of Technopolis is uh, Mr. Dyoktiv, Gennady Dyoktiv. I can arrange for an interview with him. He is uh, uh, really very uh, open-minded and service uh, his his mindset as a service provider for business, which is not that usual for the state-owned special economic zones. And they are a high-tech special economic zone. That would be a great conversation to have. I mean, uh, it's really interesting to figure out, you know, a lot of the SEZs that we speak to uh, end up being stuff like, you know, business process outsourcing and logistics and just uh, these centers of uh, implementing uh, of implementing existing technologies and sort of spreading uh, spreading the existing technologies and development to uh, to regions that are underdeveloped and uh, and that's perfectly fine. But what I'm really excited about hearing is uh, you know new uh, new technologies and new uh, approaches coming from these places. And uh, you know a lot of this stuff has been coming from uh, from Russia, China, and the U.S. But uh, something that I would be really excited to uh, to see would be more uh, more innovations and more of this you know new technology type zones happening in the uh, in the global south so for example uh, brazil has recently uh, created legislation that allows for export processing zones uh, and uh, you know i'd i'd love to see places like that or india south africa and places like that um innovating and creating these uh, these new and high technology zones so from your point of view katerina uh, you know looking at sort of the four types of of, uh, of zones that are present in Russia, you mentioned uh, tourist port zones, uh, and then industrial and high tech. Um, which of these do you think are the most relevant currently for uh, for emerging markets? Because if we're looking at an extremely you know underdeveloped region, let's say uh, Somalia, then port zones like the uh, free port of Berbera, the DP world is developing out there, I think makes the most sense. But uh, how would you sort of grade in which order these need to be developed? Maybe it's uh, the port goes first and the high tech goes last. So how, how would you sort of approach this? Uh, well, um, uh, it's uh, it's an interesting question. Thank you for that, Alexa. You know that in the 
I guess it was 1976, as uh, Jungtat started uh, a program for export processing jobs uh, zones. And for the developing countries at that moment, it was the number one solution and because uh, they created over 1.2 million uh, jobs within two years. The idea was that the uh, world-famous concerns uh, come to, uh, to a, a territory uh, um, equipped with the industrial infrastructure uh, financed by the um, World Bank. And uh, they... Uh, uh, used the uh, local labor force, but 100% of the production went for export. Uh, uh, this was a very good idea for developing countries. But uh, nowadays, uh, we are living in quite a different time. Uh, I guess a lot of, a lot of processes uh, will be completely a revolutionary uh, uh, rethought in the next uh, decade. The classical industries and the classical industry leaders are disrupting and uh, have to uh, be uh, rethought from the very beginning in order to, uh, uh, to stay to stay on the market. Um, I'm sure that in the next decades, we will have a development of a digital product development so that the uh, most famous or the leaders in the industry will be doing their product as a digital model and sending it uh, to all over the world for the local production on the shared production facilities. This, uh, uh, in my view, this is the future. These production facilities have to be equipped with the top uh, machinery uh, and uh, have to be uh, operated by AI, adjusting the production processes uh, to, to the daylight, to, uh, to the price of the electricity, and also to uh, products uh, from very small to huge amounts. And uh, I guess uh, pandemic was a catalyzator for, for these processes. We saw that all the value um, chains were disrupted. The logistics collapsed. So uh, the need for the local production in each country is, is huge. And I guess that we are going in the direction of diversing or, or to, uh, to splitting the product development process, which will remain by the industry leaders on the one hand side, and to uh, production processing uh, capacity and uh, expertise, which has to be uh, new established in the industrial world. And this would be industry 5.0. Uh, we see this contract manufacturing trend in pharma a lot right now. Uh, there is Pfizer One, for example, and many other companies who concentrate on contractual production for different pharmaceutical concerns all over the world. And according to our analysis, the contra contract manufacture, uh, manufacturing uh, is used for uh, the most parts of the industry from uh, textile, uh, furniture, chemistry to metal production and electronics. We see uh, the contract manufacturing, the best example of the contract manufacturing is the uh, Taiwan and uh, uh, Chinese company, uh, Fox, uh, Fox, what company. is the name? Oh, yeah, exactly. So these are like the uh, original parts manufacturers that work for bigger companies, like Foxconn manufactures parts for Apple and for Android, right? 
uh, uh, they are manufacturing, according to my knowledge, also the complete iPhones or uh, televisions. They are manufacturing up to 70% of the electronics, uh, as far as I know. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's fascinating to think about how, the, how there's layers to, uh, to any given uh, to any given industry that's present in uh, in SEZs. Like, for example, one of the things that I noted was that original parts manufacturers uh, for automobiles specifically, because that's something that I was looking at recently, they set up shop in SEZs and they uh, and they do manufacturing. And, uh, you know, this is a company that's, let's say, uh, uh, you know, this is a Kyrgyz company that I was looking at, but they, uh, they build parts. Uh, there's many hundreds of companies that actually make up the supply chain of larger manufacturers, larger companies, you know, Foxconn with Apple, and I'm sure Foxconn subcontracts to uh, to other manufacturers that need to make stuff like circuit boards or, uh, or whatever, uh, whatever parts. That's a fascinating way to think about you know, vertical integration of, uh, of these industries. So with regard to something like that, uh, in your experience in the industrial zones in Russia, uh, are a lot of these Russian companies vertically integrated where they produce their own entire chain of, uh, of products from, uh, from start to finish? Or is there a lot of these, if I can make a joke, sort of like the, uh, sort of like the Russian nesting dolls, is there a chain of companies that, uh, that interact uh, vertically through uh, through a single value chain. Uh, well, you know, uh, uh, Russian industrial tradition was established in the Soviet Union, where we had uh, uh, value chains distributed uh, in the uh, fifteen Soviet republics, and a very strong cooperation uh, was uh, between Ukraine, Russia, and uh, Belarus. And after the collapse of the Soviet Union, Russia had to re-establish these uh, value chains. And many of the plants uh, were vertical integrated. Um, and this was not the best idea in my view. So why wouldn't it, uh, so, why wouldn't it be a good idea? Uh, to be vertical integrated? Yes. Um, because of, uh, of the specialization. I guess this vertical integration brings, uh, at least at the beginning, uh, when the uh, when the um, traditional value chains collapse to 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 losses in quality. Um, what what I see uh, right now in our special economic zone, we have uh, mostly the consumer goods. We have only two producers, uh, for example, Phoenix Contact. They are doing over, uh, it's a German producer of electronics and um, electrical parts for the industry. Uh, they have over 50,000 products and they are supplies for Siemens, for General Electric and for Schneider Electric, for example. And this is this is a question of specialization. Let's see how the modern world develops because I give you Right after the COVID uh, story, uh, the chains have to be rethought and reorganized. Maybe it comes to uh, vertical integration. Maybe it comes to uh, separation of the uh, production production activities uh, and concentration on the product development. And then the different producers would have an engineering uh, teams combining uh, the products all over the world in a digital form 
and then sending the end digital product to the contract manufacturer. This might be the future. I, I almost uh, completely uh, and perfectly agree with that. I've been looking at uh, at two different modes of production and seeing sort of what the uh, what the contrast is between vertical integration versus not. And uh, the two examples that I've taken is uh, World War II era production, which was extremely vertically integrated and particularly in the Soviet Union for the production of uh, battle vehicles compared to, say, the production of Formula One vehicles for uh, for high-performance racing. And uh, in high-performance racing, there is a central engineering team that figures all of this stuff out, but they uh, they subcontract a lot of their works and components manufacturer and all of that. And uh, it's all extremely expensive stuff to make, but uh, it's non-vertically integrated compared to, you know, mass production uh, that uh, that exists in sort of this military setting where it was, uh, where it made sense to have uh, vertical integration because you're trying to win on uh, on uh, sort of economies of scale and uh, and bulk production. So it's uh, it's really fascinating to think about how the history of various places uh, throughout the 20th century influenced the way that uh, the companies uh, companies exist now. And you mentioned propensity for some companies to be vertically integrated in uh, in Russia and how there's a trend to when you know when you're uh, when you're competing internationally uh, there is a trend towards uh, towards de uh, deintegration vertically speaking so uh, all of these seem like extremely exciting developments for uh, for SEZs because when you allow for specialization like you mentioned when you're uh, when you're creating stuff like circuit boards or something like that then uh, the people working there have much more time to study that specific problem as opposed to you know product and project management you know the, there's a lot of time and effort lost there and when you specialize you're able to much more closely analyze the thing that you're manufacturing and uh, figure out some, you know, uh, some some steps in how to increase efficiency and uh, and just generally provide more value with the uh, with the technology that you're creating. So this was a really fascinating conversation for me. I didn't uh, speak much during it because I was uh, I was busy listening. But uh, as far as uh, understanding more about these things like vertical integration and doing business in Russia and uh, the SEZs that uh, that are going on in Russia, uh, there's a book that I would recommend. It's called uh, Innovation in Industrial Clusters, and uh, we'll have a link to that in the description. But I was wondering, Ekaterina, if there are any uh, books, films, or uh, websites, you know, blogs, any type of material that you'd like to recommend to our listeners as far as uh, as far as finding some, you know, sources about all of this stuff. Thank you for interesting conversation. And uh, for Technopolis Moscow, uh, we are working currently on. Slightly speaking, uh, the assignment is to create best ever a special economic zone in the world on the basis of Technopolis. And I'm very excited because we are working in a team of uh, advanced uh, consultants in the world of the special economic zones, starting with the president of FIMOSA and up to uh, Andreas Baumgartner, who is the... Yes, uh, Andreas, was, uh, Andreas was on our podcast uh, from the Metis Institute. Uh-huh. Yes, yes. So uh, I'm... I'm uh, Really honored and extremely glad to um, have a privilege to work in such a team. And um, we are uh, elaborating now solutions uh, which have never been, and also Titus, Titus Gable, you know him, three private cities. 
So Certainly. we'll see uh, uh, what of the uh, proposals we'll be able to implement in Technopolis. I'm excited uh, about this work and um, I would keep you posted on it. I mean, best special economic zone in the world is a very, very competitive uh, superlative to capture. I wish you, uh, I wish you all the luck in uh, in succeeding on that. And uh, I'm looking forward to anything that you can uh, send me after this uh, after this podcast. But uh, this is a really enjoyable conversation, Katrina. You're welcome. Welcome back onto the podcast anytime. And uh, just for our listeners, uh, I want to thank you for listening to this conversation. You've been listening to the Geoeconomics Podcast. Uh, if you want to, you can uh, subscribe to us on YouTube or follow us on wherever you get your podcast, like Stitcher or uh, iTunes or various other uh, channels on the internet. You can also find us on Twitter at GeoeconomicsPod, and you can find our website, uh, adrianopelgroup.com. All of this will be in the description. Uh, Ekaterina, I want to thank you again for coming onto the podcast, and uh, we'll see you next time.